Another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Lois Lapika, resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute, and I'm joined today by Saul Stein. Saul Stein is an author, entrepreneur, and founder and CEO of Stein and Day Publishers. As CEO of Stein and Day, Mr. Stein witnessed his company's journey through Chapter 11. He chronicled the Chapter 11 experience in his 1989 book entitled A Feast for Lawyers. Inside Chapter 11, an expose. This book can be described as a searing critique of the Chapter 11 process and particularly bankruptcy lawyers. Sol Stein was the speaker at the ABI annual meeting in 1990, soon after A Feast for Lawyers was published. In that speech, he recounted his recent experience with the bankruptcy system. You will no doubt note that his critique of the bankruptcy system in 2007 has not softened with time. It's somewhat of an understatement to observe upon reading A Feast for Lawyers and speaking with Mr. Stein that he did not have a positive experience with the bankruptcy system. Precisely because of this, however, his perspective is enlightening. Particularly enlightening given the recent attention focused upon the issue of bankruptcy ethics and the professional responsibility of bankruptcy lawyers. A self-regulating profession must listen to and consider critiques of the profession and the system in which it operates in an effort to improve it. A Feast for Lawyers is one such critique. And precisely because it is so critical, I regularly assign chapters from A Feast for Lawyers to my bankruptcy students, many of them future bankruptcy attorneys, in order to provide them with an alternative lens with which to view the system. No doubt the bankruptcy process looks and feels very different depending upon the perch from which you experience it. While Mr. Stein and Stein and Day may have been victims of a perfect storm of circumstances, no doubt there are cautionary lessons for all participants in the bankruptcy process that can be gleaned from hearing his story. Thank you so much for joining me, Mr. Stein. Glad to be here. Mr. Stein, give our audience some sense of your background. Um, I mentioned in my introduction that you were the founder and CEO of Stein and Day Publishers. What path did you take to get there? Specifically, where did you grow up, go to school, and what jobs did you hold before you founded Stein and Day? Uh, I was born in Chicago, um, moved uh, with my family at the age of four to New York, uh, attended DeWitt Clinton uh, High School, which was then the largest high school in the world and was a uh, foundation's uh, stone of my uh, education. Uh, I then attended CCNY, which I entered at the age of 15. At 18, uh, I, I had enlisted at the age of 17 and 8, and uh, was later to, uh, deployed to uh, Europe. Uh, I had two years in the Army there. Um, my <coughs> employments are were really very uh, scattered rather than a linear uh, uh, line from uh, uh, one end of uh, a career to another. Um, I was uh, the deputy and the senior editor of the ideological advisory staff of the Voice of America, which was a State Department uh, 
function at the time. Uh, this was in 1953, 4, and 5. Um, from there, I became executive director of the American Committee for Cultural Freedom, which brought together some 300 intellectuals of right, left, and center in opposition to all forms of totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. um, I went from there to the Research Institute of America, uh, where I, again, uh, was the chief editor of the executive membership division. And um, finally, I, I, I guess, got closer to publishing because in 1953, without being employed on the premises, I developed um, the uh, software book line of the Beacon Press. And uh, I see that I am now spoken of as the... Uh, the um, father of the book-sized trade paperback, which is now the most common form of book. Uh, I went on from that uh, to uh, eventually to found the uh, Mid-Century Book Society in partnership with uh, W.H. Auden, uh, Jacques Parson, who was then the provost of Columbia University, and Lionel Trilling. Mm -hmm. uh, I had been a Ph.D. student with him, and uh, that ran for about two and a half years, at which point I then founded Stein and Day. Uh -huh. Well, before we get to your story concerning Stein and Day and its experience in Chapter 11, um, I'd like you to talk about your experience as an author. Um, I understand you've written five novels about the law or involving a lawyer as a protagonist. Tell us about this character and these books. Well... He's by name in only two of the books. But, uh, one is The Magician, which is probably my most commercially successful book. It uh, sold over a million copies, and it's still in print. was taken by the Book of the Month Club and so forth. And, and uh, then what I think of as my best novel, which is called Other People. His name is George Tomasi. Mm -hmm. And uh, Harcourt Brace, when they published Other People, the... Uh, co-publisher told me that they were getting letters from women who wanted to meet George Tomasi, <laughs> and, and it was piling up, and these were not cranks. They were apparently very literate people. That's, so obviously that's very flattering. A successful character. <laughs> of your character development, absolutely. That's great. Well, tell us about Stein and Day. Um, when was it formed? And I understand for a time it was quite successful. Tell us about its success. Well, it was uh, quite successful for uh, almost all of its life. Mm -hmm. In 1962 is when it was founded. Mm -hmm. uh, its first book was Edith Kazan's America, America, which sold three million copies. Uh, the second book of Kazan's, The Arrangement, was number one on the New York Times bestseller list for 37 consecutive weeks. It mm -hmm. never happened before. Um, we, our first non-fiction non bestseller was David Frost. Uh, we published uh, Jack Higgins, who had a bestseller every season. Mm -hmm. We uh, even dipped into the lawyer pool. Uh, F. Lee Bailey was an author of mine. Mm -hmm. um, the company, uh, as in all publishers, went... Uh, a bit up and a bit down until the events of um, uh, 19, I guess, 87, 88. Mm -hmm. I, should, I should point out something that's important, which is 
1987, the Writer's Yearbook uh, had an annual thing in which they uh, presented the top 50 book publishers. And that list, the criteria for appearing on that list, had to do only with benefits to authors, mm -hmm. who, of course, are responsible for everything that happens in publishing. Right. Stein and Day was number three. Wow. Knopf was number two, and Norton was number one. But below Stein and Day were Doubleday and Dell and Dutton and Prentice Hall and Dodd Mead and Houghton Mifflin, and we could go on and on. Mm -hmm. But I'm very proud of the fact that uh, we reached that point just before um, the uh, lawless uh, Chapter 11 process began. Let's, let's talk a little bit about um, that. Was there one trigger or precipitating event that led to Sign and Day's bankruptcy filing? Uh, yes. We published hardcover books and uh, trade paperbacks, and uh, there uh, was a push to uh, grow, and so we uh, found a distributor of uh, mass market paperbacks, which we began to publish. There were nine such distributors, and only one had room for another publisher. Mm -hmm. I had no way of knowing that the chairman of that firm was a convicted felon. Uh, the, uh, that firm ended up owing us quite a bit of money. Mm -hmm. uh, we had to sue under RICO to recover that money. Uh, this was in federal court. And, uh, the Southern District of New York, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, uh, the judge we pulled is someone who is not very good at managing his calendar, and the uh, upshot was that it took four years for us to get a conviction. By that time, Stein and Day was in Chapter 11 because it had been unable to pay in a timely fashion a couple of its uh, suppliers, book manufacturers. Mm -hmm. Well, as you've talked about um, in your book and other places, you have some very real, very personal, and very specific criticisms of the bankruptcy process. Um, what suggestions do you have for other business owners and members of management who may find themselves in a situation similar to the one Sign and Day found itself in? at the time it filed for bankruptcy? Well, I'd like to say, uh, read my book, but <laughs> I don't think that would be enough in itself yeah. because most people who run companies uh, have no idea what uh, Chapter 11 involves because they take it for granted that what they are told, which is that it, it provides a second chance, uh, it provides an umbrella so that you have some time with your creditors in order to uh, get your ship flowing and uh, good water again and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, but none of that is true. Uh, the fact is that uh, Chapter 11 uh, across this country is a process, as I see it, uh, in which the assets of a company are converted to legal fees. Well, what um, suggestions would you offer for members of the bankruptcy bar 
as a um, CEO of a former debtor? I would say uh, do a lot. I've met, met many of uh, those lawyers and, and some of the judges uh, when I came to Washington to address your group. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them are very fine people, and uh, they need to clean up the act of the, of the bankruptcy bar. It has a very, very bad reputation, and the, the reason is very clear. Uh, I gather in California, something like nine out of ten companies that go into uh, bankruptcy uh, never come out of it. I mean, that's not a success rate that we'd want in any other occupation, is it? Do you think that's a factor of the, the bankruptcy system and process? Uh, yes, because uh, the system is not a just system, and it is not even lawful. And let me give you an example. We had an attorney by the name of Joshua Angel, who was the head of a bankruptcy firm, who uh, had us bring all of our um, materials and uh, financials and everything else to his offices, and he and his colleagues spent time going over that, and he wanted to represent us. He said, you can come out of this. However, one of the uh, two creditors that started this uh, pulled a dirty trick, which I gather is not uncommon. They sent somebody to New York to make an appointment at that law firm uh, to see if they could engage that law firm. And I, I don't know what happened in the course of that meeting. They didn't seem to end up as a client of the law firm. But they're having done that made it impossible for Joshua Angel's firm to represent us. Mm-hmm. Now, that seems to me is an unscrupulous procedure that goes against what law is supposed to do. Because it, it, it's a trick. It's a trick. Contact constituted a conflict of interest. That's right. Yeah. But, but that's baloney. I mean, we're, we're talking to grown-ups now, not to children. And it's very important to, for the members of the bankruptcy bar to know that some of the stunts that are conducted frequently are seen as stunts and are seen as unlawful practice by laymen and by CEOs of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as you know, the bankruptcy code has recently been amended, and included in the amendments are some provisions that are specifically designed to address some of the concerns that have been expressed by small business debtors. Um, for example, uh, a new, provision, new provisions are designed to streamline small business bankruptcy cases. Um, by limiting the debtor's exclusivity period within what within which um, a debtor can file a reorganization plan. Um, there's also a new limit uh, in terms of time within which the court must confirm a plan within in a small business case. Um, another example is a provision that adopts a more flexible process for the confirmation of plans in small business cases. Um, Clearly, the purpose of these changes is to make the bankruptcy process for small businesses more expeditious and more economical. Um, What's what's your reaction to that? My reaction to that is very negative. I I gather your audience consists of lawyers, 
And if well, I said to them, you, if you ever dreamed of writing a novel, start now. Uh, you can learn as you go. You can get advisors. Uh, you can get books that will help you. And uh, spend seven or eight hours or ten hours a day at it and see how you make out. Maybe you'll learn to write a novel. Well, I don't know anybody that would take up that challenge. But that's the same kind of thing that happens to uh, the, the non-lawyer, the layman, who is uh, running a business that has a glitch, in this case a glitch that was not caused by us, mm-hmm. and he has to learn a whole new industry. And an industry of which I'm afraid has not done enough, I mean, despite these changes in the law, to eliminate the corruption. And let me give you one example that very much came to mind when I knew this call was coming up today. Uh, I was in the judge's office on one occasion in which there were nine lawyers present, I guess representing various parties. Mm -hmm. And I was handed a piece of paper to read, and I was asked to sign it. And I said to the judge, Your Honor, this paper is false. I can't sign it. And he said, sign it or I'll take your home away. Now, that's the God's honest truth. Mm-hmm. And with lawyers present, all of them members of the bankruptcy bar, no one objected to that. That home is what is supporting me and my family and some of my children today. I had to sell it, um, but the threat of taking it away from me under those circumstances is something that should make every lawyer listening to this as ashamed as Abu Ghraib has been to the whole country. If that goes on, if that's the kind of action that can take back, can take, can happen behind closed doors, then the bankruptcy bar needs not those new laws which do so little to change it, but a change of morality. That's my judgment. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've inspired me to write a sequel to the book. <laughs> what was the, the bench and bar's reaction to your book? Um, after its original publication, did you hear specifically from lawyers' organizations or judges' organizations or individual lawyers? Well, yes, a lot of it was public. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, I happen to have in front of me a copy of the, of the uh, uh, New York Times, which I can give you one sentence out of, mm-hmm. because that paper is normally copied throughout the country. It says, quote, he has produced an appalling Dickensian portrait of the entire system, ought to be read not only by executives facing Chapter 11, but by all entrepreneurs, and indeed by anyone who fantasizes about running his own company. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was surprised that the law journals reviewed the, the book, those that did, yeah. favorably. Uh-huh. Uh, I was surprised that the, uh, the judge in charge of bankruptcy, I think it was in Brooklyn, uh, wrote a long piece that was essentially a review, of, a favorable review of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously there are many uh, people in the bar who are very upset by this kind of thing. And uh, 
uh, I was hoping that the changes in the law uh, would do something to improve the lawfulness of the bankruptcy process and the fairness of it. Those are the things that this country was founded on, and it needs work. You mentioned in A Feast for Lawyers that some of your best friends are lawyers. Um, yes. How have your lawyer friends reacted to your criticism of the legal profession? Well, I think they, the ones that I talk, talked with most uh, at the time and uh, beyond that are, are all judges now or are retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had none that uh, criticized me for anything in the book. And they, did they offer alternative stories from their experience in practice or um, sitting on the bench? Uh, not really. Uh, one of them was, uh, uh, in a sense, very close to this case in that he supervised that part of the district uh, uh, of the federal court in which the bankruptcy was held. And, and uh, so he was very much on my mind and I on his during that whole awful procedure mm-hmm. time. But he had to keep his distance, you know, uh, from actual involvement in anything. So I tried to uh, uh, to keep our friendship clean. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, uh, the other uh, person, uh, the lawyer who. Uh, has obviously read all of my writings uh, and uh, read this book is uh, the only person who has read my forthcoming memoir which will be a couple of years until it's uh, out in public Mm -hmm. and there is a chapter in that about the bankruptcy and the title of the chapter is indicative of uh, my view and his Mm -hmm. and the title is Hijacked Mm-hmm. Are, are there any heroes in your story? Pardon me? Are there any heroes in your story? Well, yes, Joshua Angel is certainly a hero. Mm-hmm. He seemed to be an honorable lawyer who did his work to to say that this this uh, company can stand on its on its feet uh, and uh, he he did not ask for a fee uh in advance. Uh but uh I think you may recall from an earlier conversation that uh, the first lawyer that I went to, uh, somebody I didn't know, um, uh, took a look at the at the papers and uh, wanted fifty thousand dollars. I mean, this is the money of long ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, before uh, doing anything, and uh, at the time, I think we had twenty five thousand uncommitted, but that wasn't enough, and he had, he suggested that an apprentice of his or an associate who had left the firm could handle the case, and uh, that came to no good end. He filed papers that were very bad, and the whole thing had to be done over again, but I never saw the the $25,000 again. Mm -hmm. I, I, by heroes, uh, I think the heroes are my seven children who lived through this. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I had our marriage destroyed by the fact that she, for two years, had to appear 
in federal court daily to go through the torture of being on the witness stand because I'm sort of a feisty guy, and when I was asked a question, I replied as forcefully as I would if I were not on the witness stand, and that seemed to be improper, so she took the burden of that. Well, the Stein and Day bankruptcy ultimately resulted in the demise of the firm. What have you been doing since that time? I understand you've undertaken another entrepreneurial venture, and isn't that unusual for the CEO of a company that has filed bankruptcy? I don't know what other CEOs have done. We were finished in 1989, and it happened to be that that year I invented some computer programs that were useful to writers, and we had to form a small company that would publish and market them, and that continued for a long time. You weren't scared off by your experience in Chapter 11 or concerned about starting again? I think we need to go back to the beginning. I am not a bureaucrat. I am not very happy about bureaucracy, and I'm unhappy doing things that I think are wrong. When I was in service overseas, I received a written order from General Eisenhower to distribute a million copies of a pamphlet that was in praise of the Red Army. The Cold War had started by then. We were just edging where the American troops and the Russians met, and there were daily thousands, maybe tens of thousands, of people fleeing across the border, usually women and usually women with children. They were trying to escape the rapists of the Red Army. I suppose there are people that would have distributed that pamphlet in praise of the Red Army, but what I did is I put it in a shack and publicly threw the key away. Now, that's insubordination, but nothing ever happened to me, and that's been true of my entire life since. I do what I think is proper and just, and I will not obey a bad order. I'm sure General Eisenhower, may he rest in peace, he signed my master's degree after that at Columbia, so obviously he didn't hold a grudge, but he didn't know that. Somebody in Washington must have ordered that, written it, and sent it, and he did what he did, but it wasn't a personal act. I want to make sure everybody understands that. That's right. Well, when I teach bankruptcy law at the University of Maine School of Law, I often assign a few chapters of a thesis for lawyers. What message do you have for my law students and other law students around the country who are considering bankruptcy practice as a career? Well, I think they have to think about it the way somebody who might go into price fighting, which 
was an occupation that uh, there were a lot of things wrong with and a lot of things that were illegal or unjust. Uh, I think somebody who uh, wanted to be an honorable practitioner would either go into the bankruptcy law in order to try to help reform it or would go into a different branch of the law. Mm-hmm. I would hope. And do you see that there are inherent problems with the system or is it just certain people in your experience? No, no, it's, it's in the system because you may recall course you would. Uh, there was a, a uh, change in the bankruptcy law, I think it was in the 1970s, mm-hmm. which was designed to attract a better lawyer, uh, better people. And to do that, they changed the law so that individuals could uh, bill in bankruptcy the same as they would anywhere else rather than some stipulated hourly fee. They thought that would bring a higher class of lawyer to the bankruptcy bar. Instead, it brought a lot of people who were the worst kind of lawyer, who would do anything in order to beef up their fees. Uh, I'm I'm sorry to report that, but I have not seen any proof to the contrary in all the years since. I'm sorry to give you you an opposing view in a sense, I think what you have to say is very interesting, and and no doubt there will be some members of the audience who will not see it the way you do. But I think you offer a very interesting perspective and one that comes out of your experience. So I I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I look forward to reading your memoir when it's completed. (laughs) And I've enjoyed chatting with you. And again, I appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for your courtesy. I'm Lois Lupica, resident scholar, and this has been a podcast of the American Bankruptcy Institute.